First of all, uh, before I tell you what scripture we're going to be using today, I want to give a testimony of praising the Lord for bringing us safely through another year. This is the end, the very end of this 2023. When I was a kid, I used to lie awake in my bed figuring out how old I would be if I ever lived to the year 2000. I remember when 2000 got here, all of the computer people, all of the technology people scared us all to death by saying everything might not work. It was all going to be thrown out because they weren't geared to handle those kinds of things. And of course, nothing happened. It went just as smoothly as it could go. I don't have to remind you, however, that although the world has always been a place of trouble, far more now. There are many, many souls that entered 2023 that are not here with us this time, at this time. Uh, they had a memorial service yesterday for Mary Spears. Many of you remember Mary, who worshiped with us for years and she was killed tragically in an automobile wreck a few weeks ago. And they had a memorial service for her yesterday. And I understand that Brother Foster kind of undertook. Somebody didn't show up. And Brother Foster stood up and gave a little something to say, a, a, a eulogy, and perhaps something of God's word. And that's good. That's as it should be. We do not know what this new year is going to hold for us, but we realize that we're seeing major changes in this nation and throughout the world. And so today I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. If you'll stand together with me, for those of you who are visiting with us, we're just delighted to have you. We always try to stand when we read God's Word. I've been bringing a certain series of studies, but I'm going to interrupt that series to bring you a study today and possibly a second study next week, 2 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to talk to you today about resolutions and promises. Resolutions <clears throat> and promises. Let me ask you this, did you get everything you wanted for Christmas, everybody got all that you wanted. You had everything you were hoping for and everything that you got, you were happy with. Well, I'm reminded of a couple that I heard about recently. They were in a busy shopping center just before Christmas. And uh, the wife suddenly noticed that her husband was missing. And they had a lot to do, and she couldn't find him, so she called him on her cell phone. And when he answered, she said, where are you? We've got a lot of things to do. And he said, well, honey, he said, you remember that jeweler store we went to, the store we went to, the jewelry store about 10 years ago, and you fell in love with that diamond necklace? And I couldn't afford it at the time, and I said that one day I would get it for you. Of course, he couldn't see her on the phone, but tears began to roll down her cheeks, and she got all choked up, and she said, I do remember that shop. 
He said, well, I'm in the gun shop just right next door to that. <laughs> Is that the way your Christmas went? <laughs> Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. A servant is the word bond slave. Apostle is a word for one who is sent out. Of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith. So he's writing to Christians. To them who that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. That is, he has given us everything we need to have a life of godliness of serving him. The power, the instructions, through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Notice that we're called not only to glory, but we're called to virtue, that is to live virtuous lives by the grace of God. How are we to live these virtuous lives? Here it is, verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, that is, that you might act like you say you are children of God, so we want you to live in this world and act like you're children of God, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We've escaped it positionally. Positionally, we're in Christ. But practically, we haven't escaped it because we still live in the world. And so we need help. And he says the help, the platform upon which we are to stand are these exceeding great and precious promises. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word. Let God's people say praise the Lord. And let's appeal to the Lord one last time to help us as we look into his word. Father, I stretch my hand to thee. No other help I know. If I with myself from thee all whither shall I go all whither shall I go thank you you may be seated I'll begin by saying happy new year to all of you although we're not in it yet. We still have a few hours left. I would like to talk to you today about resolutions and promises. 
And I have a single point in this message today, so you should be able to grasp it. I don't think I'll be keeping you as long as sometimes I do. At this time of the year, we are big on promises. We may not use that word, promise. Instead, we use another term, resolution. Instead of saying that we promise to do this or that, or that we promise not to do this or that, we say we are resolved. We make uh, resolutions. The truth is, however, that although we may resolve to do something, or resolve not to do something, the record shows that more often than not, we don't keep our resolutions. There are no doubt many, many reasons why that happens to be true for most of us, but there are two major reasons. I'm going to tell you what those major reasons are, but then I'm going to spend our time on only one. The first major reason that we don't keep our resolutions is because we don't have the power, we don't have the strength, we don't have the will, we don't have the determination, we don't have the intestinal fortitude to carry out our resolutions. And the second reason is because things come up, things or people or circumstances come up that we did not foresee, which prevent us from carrying out our resolutions. Now let's think about this first reason. We don't have the power, the strength, the will, the determination, the intestinal fortitude often to carry our resolutions out. People are making all kinds of resolutions. They're going to lose weight. They're going to exercise more. They're going to be more consistent in this and consistent in that. But for one or more reasons, we lack the essential desire to make it all happen. Now, in the vast majority of cases, and I want you to hear me here, in the vast majority of cases, we lack the essential desire to carry out these resolutions because we really don't have the desire. We say we want it but we really don't. And like most everything else in this country, little effort or sacrifice is required to get what we want. We can buy it. We can take a magic pill. We can go online. Uh, we can pay somebody else. And this carries over to our resolutions. Since we can get almost everything we want by one means or another, we don't really have the fortitude to resolve to do or not do much of anything. And besides, in this country, we feel that we are entitled to it. So why sweat it? And I say all of this because, as you and I know, when we really want something, when we just have to have it, when we feel and we are convinced in our souls, in our heart of hearts, that we cannot live without it, 
we will go after it until we get it or until it becomes clear that it is an impossibility. And that's why we don't keep these resolutions. Now, this is also the way it is with the modern idea, increasingly so, of biblical gospel salvation. Sure, we'll take Jesus. Sure, we'll let Jesus save us. We'll let him bless us here in this world, and we'll let, us, let him take us to heaven when we die. After all, nobody wants to go to hell. I remember Ralph Barnard walking down the street one day. Ralph Barnard was an evangelist. I've told this story many times, so some of you may remember it. He was an evangelist. He never passed it to church. You can go online and still pick up some of his messages. Ralph Barnard. He had some famous messages like God's bloodhound. He had a message about Paul the apostle on the way to Athens. He had a lot of, a lot of messages. And Barnard, unusual man, he was called the evangelist who is different. And he was walking down the street one day. He was in this town. He would preach for several weeks at churches, three or four or five weeks for a while a man that I happen to know that worshiped with us many years ago named Fred Simmons. Fred Simmons bought Barnard a tent. And they used that tent and traveled around. Well, Barnard would promote everywhere he could when he was preaching. And he was walking down the street one day. And there were three or four guys out there throwing dice and gambling on the sidewalk. And Barnard stopped and he told him who he was and he told him he was preaching down the street at such and such a dress and invited them to come and hear him preach and they all started laughing. They all laughed at him and he said, you want to go to hell? <laughs> and they said, yeah, that's where we want to go. We want to go to hell. So Barnard reached in his hip pocket, pulled out his handkerchief, put it down on the sidewalk, got down on his knees and he said, Father, I'm praying that you'll send these men to hell. He said, that's where they want to go. I want them to have what they want. And he felt somebody tapping him on the shoulder and said, wait a minute now, preacher. And he said, that's what I thought. He said, you're not as tough as you think you are, are you? Said, you be down there tonight and hear me preach the gospel. Well, in this nation today, the modern idea of biblical salvation is certainly something different than what this nation was raised upon. Nobody wants to go to hell, and besides, we all know that everyone but the devil and his angels and a few bad folks like Hitler and Stalin and Mao will be there. Everybody else will escape it. Clint Black, some of you have heard of Clint Black. Clint Black is a, one of country music's success stories. And he now has a program, comes on every week on television, it's called Talking in Circles. Talking in Circles. And Clint Black, who seems to me to be a family man, Seems to me to be a decent human being. He has a single guest, one guest, on his show each week. And he talks with each guest about his or her career, how they got started, 
what their big break was, and so forth. But at the end of each program, Clint says to his guest, I want to ask you a question. It is a question that I ask each guest on my show. And I've seen this program several times. He says, when you get to heaven, if you could sing with anyone there, because all the people he has on his programs are musicians. If you could sing with anybody there when you get to heaven, who would it be? Now, it's apparent by such a question that Clint, like most Americans, assumes that almost everyone is going to heaven. He wouldn't dare say, if you go to heaven. Because everyone but really, 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 really bad people are going. Secondly, Clint thinks that heaven is not really going to be that different from life on earth. If you were singing here, you're going to be singing there. And not only will you be singing, but you'll be singing the same kind of songs that you sing on earth. Willie and Ray will be singing Seven Spanish Angels, and Elvis will be singing Heartbreak Hotel. And a frequent comment that I hear people make all the time on television among Hollywood people and musicians and folks that the rest of us watch, they, they say this a lot, or something like this, I know that so-and-so is looking down now. Have you heard that? My friends, listen to me now. This is the last day of the year. I've got to say something important to you. Nobody in heaven is interested in looking down to the earth for anyone or for anything. They are too busy praising the Lord and serving Him. And this means, this means that people who aren't interested in praising Him and serving Him now wouldn't be interested in praising Him and serving Him in heaven. Heaven would be a big disappointment to them. So God, the Father, will oblige them and give them what they want and it ain't heaven. When the angel was sent to John in the book of Revelation, talking about heaven and the heavenly Jerusalem and the place of glory, the Lord said through that angel to John, those who are unjust, let them be unjust still. Those who are filthy, let them be filthy still. Those who are righteous, let them go on being righteous. And those who are holy, let them go on being holy. If you're not interested in serving Christ and praising Him now, what makes you think that death's going to change anything? It'll be too late then. It'll be too late. Our generation needs to read the Bible. I want you to get this if you don't get anything else. There's only one celebrity in heaven. 
And that is the Son of God. That is the one we call Jesus Christ. And everyone else is just a sinner saved by the grace of God. There are no Jews in heaven. There are no Gentiles in heaven. There are no Baptists in heaven, no Methodists, no Presbyterians, no Episcopalians, no Pentecostals, no Catholics, just sinners saved by the grace of God. Just sinners that the Lord called and justified and preserved and glorified. Nobody in heaven will be asking for Roy, or Dale, Roy Rogers or Dale Evans. Nobody in heaven will be looking for Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett or some other famous professor, uh, per, famous uh, artist, professing artist, performer, person who was famous on earth. We need to read the Bible. And here's the second thing that we would find. There's only one celebrity in heaven. And secondly, there's only one way anyone can get to heaven. And that is through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Without the way, there's no going to heaven. Without the truth, there's no knowing the way to heaven. And without spiritual life, there's no knowing or going to heaven. No one can get to heaven by doing good deeds or charitable work or by not doing certain things, such as feeding the hungry or helping the poor. And I don't get me wrong. These things should be done, but don't plan on getting to heaven by anything you do, I do, or that we don't do. Here's what Jesus said. I'll tell you where it's found. It's found in Luke's gospel, chapter 17, verse 10. Luke said, the, the Lord said this in Luke 17 to his disciples. He says, the servant does not deserve thanks for obeying orders, does he? When you shall have done all the things commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl ought to give glory and praise and honor to the Lord. All people were created to glorify him. We ought to love our neighbors. And we ought to love them as we love ourselves. And we ought to love the Lord our God. With all of our heart and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. But do we? You love your neighbor as yourself? You love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all your being. Only one person has loved his neighbor as himself, and that is the Son of God. He's the only one that's ever loved his neighbor as himself. He's the only one who's loved God the Father with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength. He said, I do always those things that please my Father. Listen, Jesus said in Matthew 5, here's one for us to start off with, if we're going to go to heaven by what we do or what we don't do. Jesus said in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 43, you have heard that it has been said by them, 
of old time, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That lets me out right there. Next time somebody cuts in front of you and you're in a hurry to get somewhere else, say, Lord bless you, brother. <laughs> Instead of cursing them. How many of us have done this? Only one person has truly loved his enemies. We read in Romans chapter 5 concerning those who have believed in and bowed to Christ. Here's what we read. Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's all in Romans chapter 5. Don't tell anybody, but Jesus didn't die for good people. He died for sinners. And if we don't go to a church where people are told that they are sinners in need of the grace of God, we're not hearing the gospel, my friend. The good news has to begin with the bad news. We, that's why we don't appreciate Christ. That's why we don't appreciate the God of Scripture. That's why we don't appreciate the Scriptures because all we're being told about is what, what Jesus is trying to do, what he'd like to do if we'll let him. Whoever you are, you should know that nothing you have ever done or not done is a ticket to heaven. Jesus is the only ticket. He's the door. And it is only by him that we can enter that holy place. But until a Hollywood center or a country music center or a rock and roll center or a jazz center or an ordinary citizen center is made to sense his or her lostness, until we are made to know that we have sinned against God and there is no way to make it right, we're not going to be too concerned about going to heaven, about the way to get there. We can take it or we can leave it. Now I want you to listen to this, my friends. Heaven without Christ would not be heaven. Let me say it like this. If we can live without Christ... We certainly will. And if we can live without him here and now, we will live without him for eternity. The only folks in heaven are Christ lovers, Christ praisers, Christ servers. Of all the guests on Clint's show, Talking in Circles, at least the ones that I've watched, and I've seen several of his shows. I told my television to record those shows. So Lynn and I sit down sometimes and look at the interview, very interesting. But he always asks that question at the end, when you get to heaven, 
If you could sing with anybody there, who would you like to sing with? Of all the guests, the ones that I've seen, only one person who was a woman did not give Clint the answer he was looking for. I don't remember her name, but I remember what she said. When asked who she would like to sing with in heaven, she said, I'm not going to heaven. That's what she said. I'm not going to heaven. And she said it with an attitude of respect as in there's no way that a sinner like me is going to be in that holy place. I tell you today, there's hope for that young woman. Paul said, this is a faithful saying worthy to be accepted by all that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Years ago, I heard a story when we were down in the islands. We used to go to the U.S. and British Virgin Islands and visit various places. And we were, went in one place, there was a prison there. And I mean, it was a prison. You didn't get three meals a day in TV and do what you wanted to. It was a real prison. And Lynn and I sang and we, we talked. And we were with Henry Mahan. Henry did some teaching and preaching. And I heard a story when I was there in the British Virgin Islands, those islands that were under British control. A story about the king who came and visited the prison. But the king decided that he didn't want anybody in the prison yard to know that he was the king. And so he put on prison garb like he was one of the prisoners. And he was the king. And he told the people who ran the prison, I'm here today to pardon somebody. I'm going to pardon somebody. He's the king. He had the authority to do it. And this was a rough prison. And he went around and he mingled with the prisoners and he asked people, why are you in here? And he said, every Body he talked to gave him a sob, pity me story. Well, somebody did this to me. Somebody did that to me. Somebody told a lie on me. Somebody set me up here. Somebody did this and somebody did that. He said he saw a guy sitting over in the corner by himself in the prison yard. And he said, I went over and to talk to him a little while. And said, I asked him, how did you get here, my friend? This man was here, to, he was going to be executed. And he told him that he had committed murder and some other things. And he started weeping. And he said, I deserve everything I'm getting. I deserve everything I'm getting. I'll be executed next week. I'm a murderer. I had murder in my heart. I'm sorry now, but there's nothing I can do about it. I've asked God to have mercy on me, on my soul, and I just don't know, I don't know what to do. I've got to go out and meet God. And so the king left him, went back and changed into his regalia, the robe, and he came out and 
all these hundreds of prisoners were called out and said the king had something to say. And he told them, I've mingled among all of you prisoners today. None of you knew that I am the king and I'm here to pardon somebody. And I found the man that I've got to pardon because he's too bad to remain here among all you good people. I'm going to pardon him. Now that's exactly the way we feel when the Lord, by his spirit, through his word, begins to deal with our hearts about our lives, our thoughts, our intents against Almighty God. We feel that we're the biggest sinner that's ever been here. That's what Paul said. Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. You know, Paul was a murderer. He held the cloaks of people who stoned Stephen to death. Moses was a murderer. Moses killed an Egyptian. When you become a Christian, you're in a group of some pretty bad people. You got some former uh, adulterers and adulteresses and prostitutes and you got Mary Magdalene. You've got all of these people. The woman in John chapter 4 had, had five husbands. See, Christ came to save sinners. And what we have in America increasingly so is we have a bunch of good people who cannot agree with God and take sides with God against themselves. Why in the world do you think God would send his own son and put him through all that he put him through if we are all pretty good people? Why would God send his son to go through all of that? And you know, it was God, the Father, who put him to death. Read Isaiah chapter 53. Thou hast put him to grief. Thou hast made his soul an offering for sin. He used men to do it. But it was God who sent his son and put him on the cross. Now, to get back to what I have to say, we don't keep our resolutions because we don't have to. And we don't have to because we don't have a need to do so. If our lives depended upon them, we'd keep them. I remember hearing Nat King Cole. Some of you know who he was. He was a black man. He was a performer. He was a tremendous uh, piano player and vocalist. His daughter, Natalie Cole, just died a couple of years ago. And I remember reading about Nat King Cole. He was a heavy smoker. And when he was told he had throat cancer, this is what he said. He said, I'll never smoke another cigarette if I get through it this time. Always before, he said he couldn't quit. But when he thought his life depended upon it, it was different. Well, he didn't get through it. He died of throat cancer. He was spitting up blood, and he died of throat cancer. In the very same way, we don't come to Christ. America doesn't come to Christ. America doesn't want people in schools talking about Christ. America doesn't want people in the government praying in the name of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because we don't have to. We don't come to Christ because we don't have to. And we don't have to because we don't need him. 
The reason America is not saved is because it doesn't need Jesus Christ. We're doing just fine. And America doesn't need Jesus Christ because Americans think they can go to heaven without him. And if we can go to heaven without him, why seek him? Why call on him? I want you to turn to the Old Testament book, see if you can find it, of Ecclesiastes. In the middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms. Now you'll find in front of you, if you didn't bring a Bible, you'll find a pew Bible. And you can look in the table of contents and you can find where the book of Ecclesiastes is. You have Psalms and Proverbs, Psalms written by David, Proverbs written by Solomon and Ecclesiastes written by Solomon. Ecclesiastes is a book that takes a negative view of life in this world without God. He keeps saying everything in life is vain and vanity. Everything is, it has no purpose. It's purposeless. It means nothing. If you can find Ecclesiastes, go to chapter 5. In Solomon's day, people often made vows while worshiping. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Keep your foot when you go to the house of God. Now, that's an old saying that means watch where you're spiritually stepping. Watch where you're stepping spiritually and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools for they consider not that they do evil. Solomon said it's better to go to worship services to hear than foolishly make vows to God. In verse 2, he says, think before you speak. Don't make any rash promises to God. Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth. Let not your heart be hasty to utter anything before God. And to help you have that reverence for God, he says, remember, verse 2, God is in heaven and you are upon the earth. That's a picture of the exaltation and the power and the glory of God and our low estate, our lack of power and glory when a comparison is made between who we are and who God is. See, our Lord Jesus taught us to hallow the name of God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The name means authority, a power. When the officer of the law says halt in the name of the law, he means I'm ordering you to stop by the authority given me as a, a law officer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He alone is worthy of praise. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. So the writer to Ecclesiastes is saying, don't be quick to say something to God. Remember, God is high and lifted up in power and authority and glory. You are upon the earth. To go to worship the great and awesome God, consciously ignorant 
and unaware of who he is and where he is in heaven and who we are and where we are, sinners on the earth, is sacrilege. You know what sacrilege? Sacrilege is to misuse or violate or treat as common what should be recognized and upheld as sacred. God is sacred. His name is sacred. His spirit is sacred. His son is sacred. His word is sacred. And everything having to do with the Lord of Scripture must be hallowed. Here's what David said, Psalm 89, verse 7. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. We've lost this reverence, this awe, this respect for God. Because we've made his son an errand boy. Finally, we are told in verses 4 and 5, here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, that it's best not to make vows, but if you do, be sure to keep them. Otherwise, Solomon says you're a fool. Look at verses 4 and 5. When you vow a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. If you're going to make a New Year's resolution, you're going to make a promise to God, you better keep it. You better think about it before you make it. Better is it, verse 5, that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And he goes on to say, when ch the chastening hand of God comes upon you. He said, don't say to God's messenger, oh, I made a mistake. I didn't mean what I said. I'm sorry about it. Because the Lord is to be reverenced. Today in America, we, we give allegiance to everything and everybody but the Lord. It's Mother Nature and Father Time. When's the last time you heard a newscaster say the Lord brought a storm on California? Oh, no, God wouldn't do anything like that. The Scripture says that nothing happens in God's world that he doesn't have something to do with. He either permits it or he brings it. He is God and he is in heaven, said David, and he hath done whatsoever he has pleased. We're talking about God. We're not talking about somebody that's a buddy or a partner. So it's better... He says in verses 4 and 5, it's better not to vow a vow to God. It's better to hear. It's better to hear what God says in his word, learn what he says in his word, and walk according to that than it is to make vows about what you're going to do. Far better to resolve to believe what the Lord has promised than to make promises to the Lord. Now let me leave you, I hope, on a positive note. There are at least 30 thousand promises in the Bible. I have no idea how that number was calculated, but I do know for sure that in the King James Version of the Bible, there are 31,173 verses, and of those, 23,214 are in the Old Testament, and 7,959 of those verses are in the New Testament. 
And what that means is, if there are 30,000 promises in the Bible, it means that almost every verse in the Bible contains a promise. We would certainly be correct if we referred to the Bible as a book of promises. My friends, we started off tonight, or this morning, reading 2 Peter 1 about the exceeding great and precious promises. All of the prophecies made in the Bible are promises. God says this is going to happen, that's going to happen. It's on the word of God that it will happen. All the covenants stand upon the promises. All of the approximately 2,500 verses comprising the Psalms written by David and others contain potential promises. There are 915 verses in Proverbs. They can all be seen as promises. So there are at least 30,000 promises in the Bible. And so I suggest to you at the end of this old year and the beginning of a new year, then rather than make promises to yourself or make promises to others or make promises to the Lord, resolve to learn the promises of God and stand upon them. If you are outside the sheepfold of Christ, here's a promise you can learn and stand upon. Why don't you begin with this one? Listen to this. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, when you stand before God, you'll be saved. You'll be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Galatians 3, verse 22, the scripture has concluded everyone is under sin that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. This is his commandment that we believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. Now many of you who are believers, who are Christians, will have difficulty standing on the promises because of this past year. You look back and you say, well, I've made mistakes. I've fallen short. I've sinned against the Lord in 2023. And I have trouble having any kind of assurance that he will hear me. Well, here's a promise for you to stand on. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. So let me exhort and encourage you not to allow the world, don't allow the flesh, don't allow the devil to use the failures of 2023 to stifle you in 2024. All of the disciples of Christ were sinners who by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit determined not to let their past keep them from victory in the present and in the future. To repent is to have a change of mind that expresses itself in a change of life. There's an initial repentance 
that comes when we come to faith in Christ. But like faith, repentance is a lifelong work. I have repented. I am repenting. I'm going to repent. I have believed. I now believe. I shall continue to believe. They are opposite sides of the same coin, repentance and faith. To turn to Christ is faith. When I turn to Christ, I'm turning from myself and from my sins. That's repentance. The word is metanoia. It means a change of mind, a change of heart that expresses itself in a change of life. So rather than make promises, stand upon the promises. I've got a list of scriptures, but I'm going to leave you to what I've said here. He has promised to forgive all who come to him, trusting in him as Savior. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. When you're afraid, fear not, I am with thee. Be not dismayed, I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. You know how to stay in peace with yourself and with God? Keep your mind in God's word and get God's word in your mind. Isaiah 26, 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. Jesus said to his disciples, I have told you these things that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, and you will overcome the world through faith in Christ. Don't make any promises. Just stand on the promises.